Well, it's nice to be up here preaching again after a couple weeks off. Um, we are in Psalm 130 today, as you heard, and even though we heard it, I invite you to find it still so you can follow along as we'll pick out some specifics in there as we go along this morning. As you find that, in Psalm 130, the psalmist tells us something important about the world. The psalmist tells us that sometimes life hurts. Sometimes things are difficult. Sometimes we go through seasons of struggle and pain and sorrow. Pretty elementary, but pretty real to our existence. We're going to spend eight weeks in the Psalms, and there are going to be a handful of different kinds of Psalms as we, we go through it. The reason we ended up getting to this, as far as the, the next series, I had other things kind of in mind, and I try and pray through these things carefully and plan them, and I try and plan them far in advance so that I'm not uh, at the whim of what I feel like during the week, that what's planned is not based on my feelings, but through prayer and that kind of thing. But what, what I was really struck by and how we ended up here is I had a number of conversations with a number of different people who reflected so much of how the Psalms were so powerful to carry them through some of the most difficult moments or even currently carrying through them through difficult moments. And it struck me that this is something that probably all of us need to hear right now. As I prayed through this, uh, it seemed that there were so many of these conversations coming up, I couldn't ignore that. And, and it's not just that the Psalms themselves carried people through in these difficult moments because obviously God's presence is there in his word. It's that the Psalms provided the words people needed when they lacked those words themselves. So it's not simply the presence, but also just like the Spirit provides us with the words when we don't have them when we go to prayer, the Psalms, God is doing that for us in difficult times as well, giving us the very language we lack to walk through those tough seasons of life. Now, we're not simply going to focus on just the tough parts of life, but that's where it starts. Because as we go through this, we're going to kind of see a twofold nature of, of the Psalms. We're going to see Psalms that definitely encourage us when things are rough. And we're going to see Psalms that challenge us to be more like Christ, is what we're going to see. And actually, I think we'll see both pretty much every week. The Psalms themselves are have been considered for quite a long time the prayer book of the church. Um, many of you know that when I've taken personal retreats, uh, I like to go to monasteries, particularly Benedictine monasteries, and they pray through the Psalms regularly, and it's fun to go pray with them. In fact, there's a picture here that we can pop up. This is when I went to a, a Benedictine monastery in Oregon, beautiful place. Those are all the different prayer hours of the day or a different notebook, and you open it up, and you find your right place, and you pray along. It's really a, a load of fun to do, and they're going through the Psalms. I mean, regularly, like they're getting through them all very quickly within a short period of time and doing it again and again and again, and it shapes them. It shapes who they are. It shapes how they do life as they do that. It gives rhythm, consistency, and as we dig into the Psalms, it gives growth as disciples of Jesus Christ. It, it, God's presence is there as we open the Psalms. Of course, any part of his word, God is there, but we can see this, that rhythm and that consistency as we dig into the Psalms together. We will see that. And so we're going to see some that challenge, some that encourage over these eight weeks. And what was most uh, interesting and confirmatory to me as we were planning, as I was planning this series, is that 
many of you were at a funeral this week for one of our own, Julie Anderson, who was a part of our church for a number of decades, uh, who passed away uh, last week, and we did her funeral here on Wednesday, and Psalm 130 was actually the psalm we used, and principally because I was working on this, I went and sat with Julie and said goodbye to Julie with the family, and that was the psalm that actually had resonated with them at the time, too. God was working in multiple channels. And it was remarkable to see that then I preached on the same text now twice in the same week, and we'll see some different things. If you were there on Wednesday, it's not a repeat. Um, but God's been working. Whether we realize it, realize it or not, God works and continues to work through his psalms. It's been remarkable for me to experience, and I hope you experience the same thing. So as we look at Psalm 130 today, the simple point that I want to make this morning is that we need to seek God's mercy to receive God's redemption. Seems elementary again, but I think the psalmist has a lot to say to us down that path. If we look back at verse 1, this is really a key to it all. He says, out of the depths I cry to you, Lord. And there's reason to cry out. We can understand the reasons that the psalmist might have to cry out too. We can look around the world and we face injustice. We see it all around. The more your eyes are open to it, the more you see injustice around. We experience either presently sinning ourselves or the sin of others in our lives and the effect of sin. We experience hurt. We experience suffering. We experience difficult seasons of life, hurt, pain. We have sometimes bad days, and those seasons can sometimes be bad weeks that lead to bad months, and in some cases even bad years where it's really hard. And life doesn't go as we expected. We can see uh, and look around that the difficulties we face in life can be somewhat mundane, but they actually relate to the bigger ones. So You know, if I look at my garden right now, it's a garden of weeding situation right now. There's a lot of weeds in there that I need to go pick out. That's the the curse of the fall, right? Right there in front of me. The plants are growing in the wrong places and choking out the others. I can see, even though I don't think my car is that old, there's this little spot of rust that has started to erupt, decay. But we can see that that's related to the bigger problems that we face as well, chronic pain cancer, pandemic, financial stress, broken families. We experience these things all around and reasons to cry out to God. We can see bigger things, injustice, and maybe those, those are very personal terms, right? The, Jesus tells us the rain falls and the wicked and the righteous alike, and that seems like an injustice in and of itself. But it seems like we can have personal injustices we face where the jerk co-worker gets the promotion ahead of us. We can see bigger injustices out there, whether it be what happened with George Floyd or whether it be violence against Asian Americans over the past few years, extreme poverty, abortion, child abuse, or even what's gone on uh, with the discovery of mass graves throughout uh, Canada, particularly in the U.S. on Native American reservations. This world is corrupted by sin and its effects. And we have every reason to cry out to God and say, it just doesn't seem right, it just doesn't seem fair. There are signs of corruption all around. And we should cry out to God in the midst of that. But the psalmist isn't willing to let us off the hook at this point and just let us look around. Famously, uh, it's G.K. Chesterton is credited with this story, although it may not be him, but we're going to credit him with this this morning. There was, in the early 1900s, 
uh, in the London Times, I believe is the publication, there was a, uh, a letter to the editor section where they said, what's wrong with the world? Write in your thoughts about what's wrong with the world. That's asking for a lot, I feel like, if you're an editor. And G.K. Chesterton uh, famously wrote in, Dear Sir, I am yours, G.K. Chesterton. That is to say, we're, we think we're neutral when it comes to the problem of sin and its effects in the world, but we aren't. We're part of it. We're part of the problems of the world, not simply neutral when it comes to those. And the psalmist tells us as much when you get to verse 3. He says, if you, Lord, kept a record of sins, Lord, who could stand? As when judgment comes, we're no longer neutral, right? The psalmist cries out, but his cries are not simply for, and you can see his cries are not simply for injustice alone. His cries are for mercy. It's for forgiveness, for redemption, for hope, for a new day. But those cries of mercy and forgiveness acknowledge that he is actually culpable for part of the problems of this world as well. Lord, none of us are innocent before you. We're all part of the problem of corrupting your creation. I think uh, Cornelius Plantinga, the uh, Christian philosopher, says it well in his book on sin. Uh, he says, though we cannot always measure culpability for it, sin, we do know that sin possesses appalling force. We know that when we sin, we pervert, adulterate, and destroy good things. We create matrices and atmospheres of moral evil and bequeath them to our descendants. By habitual practice, we let loose a great rolling momentum of moral and spiritual evil across generations. By doing such things, we involve ourselves deeply in what theologians call corruption. And I would suggest that sometimes when I've brought up the the sort of transmission of sin generation to generation, which is a classic historical uh, theological point, original sin and how it's transmitted and that sort of thing. Sometimes you can get a little pushback uh, that surely none of this is, it's more like uh, Paul Peter Waldenstrom said, the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. So, you know, we get it by just being around nurture in a sense, sometimes we think. But I would suggest that the scientific literature is pointing out that actually it can be biologically carried on too. If you study epigenetics, which I'm not an expert in, but I was talking to one this week um, who pointed out that there is a lot of uh, evidence scientifically that biologically we pass on our trauma as well, that corruption continues on in this world. And it doesn't get better with our trying to fix it. It gets worse the more we're involved in it. When I say that, I just want to make sure, though, there's, there's one thing that we say. The truth is, the world is corrupted by sin, so are we, we're part of the problem. That doesn't mean that it's sort of a, the way we popularly understand karma, that because I did something, something immediately bad is going to happen to me, or those sorts of things. It's, it's a lot bigger than that, and, and it's a different contributing factor. Um, so we don't take it that simply and that directly, but we're all a part of the problem, is what the psalmist says. And so the response of the psalmist is important if we're going to understand our part in the solution that God has for us. I'm going to give you three things that uh, sort of key words or thoughts that the psalmist, I think, brings out. The first is lament. Yeah, out of the depths I cry, but there's a lament 
there. This is, in fact, a psalm of lament. Simply lament in its basic expression is crying out or expressing grief. And, and really crying out. I mean, letting it out. Um, you can see, though, that just so we kind of have a little understanding of the psalms, there are psalms of lament that resolve. This one ends on a note of hope. And then there are psalms of lament, much like Psalm 22 and Psalm 88. You know, Jesus cries out Psalm 22 on the cross. It's a psalm of lament that doesn't resolve. It's, it really is, doesn't end on a note of hope. It's just, God, this is hard. Why, why, God, have you forsaken me? That's Psalm 22. Uh, this one ends on a note of hope, but we can't cross over the lament and get to the hope immediately. We have to actually acknowledge this. So it's okay to call out to God in times of trouble. In fact, it's preferred that we do that. Who else can handle what we're really going through in this life but God? We should lament what's going on in our own lives, corruption in all of its forms, and the problems of this world. We should take those to God and cry out like the psalmist says. That very first, the first couple words, out of the depths, is what the psalmist is saying. It sounds very similar to like Jonah's prayer in Jonah 2, where he says, you know, I'm in the pit of Sheol, that's the abode of the dead, and there's no lower place to go. It's similar, it's not the exact same language, but really what the psalmist is saying is, my life is chaos, out of the chaos that's around me, I cry out to you. Because that's what corruption does, it causes chaos around us. But what does God do with chaos? He orders it. God makes order out of our chaos. Psalmist says, out of the depths, I lament, I cry, God, because it's chaotic in my life and out there. I was, as I was driving this week, I was behind a car that had a window sticker, and at first I laughed, and then I thought about it further, and I didn't find it as funny, but it is kind of funny at first sight, which it said, hot mess express on the back of it. Uh, that is to say, wherever this person goes, they bring the crisis with them, right? If you're wondering where the dumpster fire is, follow the car and you'll find it. That's what it said. It's funny at first sight until you realize that chaos actually isn't something we should celebrate, I don't think. And that's really what it does. Even though it's joking, it's tongue-in-cheek, yeah, 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 that's funny. Sometimes we kind of celebrate the chaos that we bring when we shouldn't be celebrating the chaos that we bring. God makes order out of chaos. That's what we should be celebrating. It's the order that God wants to make out of our chaos, out of the depths when we cry out. And so a question we have to consider as we consider what's going on here in the psalm is, are you able to lament your part in the problem of sin and corruption? Because the psalmist doesn't let us off the hook here. It's easy to point the finger and say, things are wrong out there. Clearly, I'm neutral in this situation. But the psalmist says, no, no, no. None of us would stand before your judgment. So where am I a part of the problem? How do I grieve my part in the corruption of this world? Following on the heels of that, then, we have the issue of growth that's in this psalm. So, like I said, it's not a lament psalm that stays on lament. It starts there. We have to cross through that to get where it's going. But the next thing that I would suggest that, that comes with lament is confession. Admitting the actual parts. Not just crying out and grieving those, but admitting our sins to God. This is a psalm of pilgrimage, not just a psalm of lament. 
And so Psalms 122 through 120 through 132 are considered Psalms of pilgrimage to be sung on the way to the temple. And of course at the temple, that's where you reconcile what's broken with God. God hasn't moved from our sin, we have. We're the one who broke the relationship. And at the temple, God made a way to put things back together. Obviously the full way that God repairs is through Jesus Christ, the one true sacrifice. And so they would say this, these psalms, as they went to the temple, it's an act of both recognizing and worshiping God and confessing to him as you're coming there to reconcile and, and atone and put together and, and put those guilt offerings before the Lord. Holy God, unholy people, that God can make holy again. That's what God would do through that sacrifice. And ultimately through Jesus' sacrifice, he does that once for all, for all who say yes. You can see playing on that same theme then, John, in the book of 1 John, uh, verses, chapter 1, verses 5 through 7, says, then when we lament and confess, we can't stay in the past. He says, this is the message we have heard from him and declare to you, God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live out the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus his son purifies us from all sin. What God wants to do, he does want us to cry out in our grief. But we have to acknowledge where we're wrong, where we've crossed the line, deliberately and unintentionally. We have to confess and say, you know what? I'm sorry, I'm the one who moved God, not you. And the blood of your son, Jesus Christ, actually rescues me and can make me whole with you again. We live in a new tomorrow, is what we do, not the past of yesterday. Around our house, when we say, I'm sorry, we like to follow it up by, now what does I'm sorry mean? Uh, which is, we simply say, it means I'm not going to do it again. Right? It's, it's a very empty, I'm sorry, if you're just going to go right back and intentionally do it again. That's what we're doing in confession. We're saying, I'm sorry, I'm not going to do it again. Remorse goes with that. It all goes lament, confession. We, re we remorse, have remorse over what we've done. We confess it. And I would suggest to you then, if we can see in the big picture, the cure to the corruption of this world starts with confession in my heart and yours. And what that means is we have a commitment to new life. We specifically would say new life in Jesus Christ because that's where this all points to. The Psalms do point to what God would do in Jesus Christ. The commitment to new life, which gives us a new source for value, meaning, and purpose that's specifically centered in Jesus Christ. Is this a commitment you've made as you've considered this? Have you lamented the sin? Have you confessed? And have you said that yesterday of sin, of corruption, is not what I want, but Jesus Christ is who I choose and his remaking me? And for some of us, we've made that decision, but maybe today as we hear this psalm is a day when we need to renew our sense of lament and grief over our part in sin and confess again. The church over the centuries, particularly starting in the Middle Ages, began considering Psalm 131 of a set of what they called penitential psalms. These psalms that would lead us to that sense of confess and renewal of a new life in Christ. They, I'll list the psalms, the penitential psalms. You don't have to write them down. I can hand you this afterwards if you're really interested. They're 6, 32, 38, 51, 102, 130, and 143. You know those psalms. 
Um, and in the Middle Ages, they started adding one of the seven deadly sins to each one of those. Envy is the one that gets attached to Psalm 130. They did that because they recognized that this was a, a powerful tool by which we could confess and renew that new life in Christ. I hope you find it that way this morning. But where this all points, in the end, the psalmist points us and doesn't just let us land in lament and doesn't just let us land in the, the area of confession, but to hope what God will do once we've pinpointed the source of corruption and handed that over to him. Hope, the source and center of our expectations, which are found in Jesus Christ. In verses 5 and 6, I really think this is the most powerful moment in the psalm. We heard it a couple times this morning. We'll hear it once more. It says, I wait for the Lord. My whole being waits, and in his word I put my hope. I wait for the Lord more than watchmen wait for the morning. More than watchmen wait for the morning. In the ancient world, the watchmen were the security guards of the city or the camp if they were out and about. They're the people who had the boring job of making sure nothing went wrong in the night, whether natural or man-made. Uh, but the most important thing that they got to do was after a long night, they got to announce the new day. That the new day has arrived in safety. We can live again, not fearing the night. Uh, Warren Wearsby, the late Warren Wearsby, a uh, friend of this congregation, uh, states about this passage, he says, you know what, you can wait through the night one of two ways. He says you can wait with hopeless resignation or hopeful anticipation. Let me give you an example of, of those two using two of the three animals in our house. Hopeful, hopeless resignation and hopeful anticipation. As far as hopeless resignation, we got a kitten back in January, and uh, somewhere about April, I opened the closet to put a coat away. Uh, when I wasn't looking, the cat snuck into the closet. I shut the door, not realizing, walked away. And you know, they're cats. You don't see them for like three or four hours at a time because they're sleeping in some odd location in your house where you can't find them. So we didn't think anything of it. But after a while, I thought, you know, I haven't seen the cat. She's small enough that, you know, she sleeps shorter and then runs and then sleeps. And so I thought, wait, ah, I had the closet door open earlier. I wonder if. So I opened it up, and there was no concern on her part. She was just laying down for a nap in there and probably had been asleep virtually the whole time she'd been in there, undeterred. I'm sure when the whole process started, she tried to figure out, can I open this door or not? Because um, she's pretty good at banging on doors. We hear it every morning when she's in the basement wants to come up. But uh, she didn't knock after a while. We didn't hear her. She just slept. That's resignation is what that is. I can't get out of this situation. I'm going to give in. You know, can't beat them, join them. That's resignation. I don't know if she was hopeless or hopeful because she's a cat. We're not going to worry about that. But if we talk about hopeful anticipation, same closet. If I'm not even close to the closet, but I look at the dog, and in that closet we keep the leash. And if I say to the dog, do you want to go on a walk? Ears up, jumping up and down, haven't even made it to the closet ready for this thing to happen whenever we get to the closet. As soon as possible, let's get out that door. That's hopeful anticipation. She's ready for this thing. She knows what's coming, even though it hasn't come yet. That's the kind of hope we're supposed to have, even though we wait through the night, even though it's long, even though there's injustice, even though there are difficult things, even though we need to lament and confess before the Lord. We are promised if we turn ourselves over to the mercy of the Lord and his blood through Jesus Christ, the redemption of his people is what's before us. 
Redemption, it's one of these slavery words from the ancient world. We use it now today more for coupons and that kind of thing, but it's the release of people, animals, and property by purchase. That's all it is. So price has been transferred and then uh, new ownership or, new, or release has occurred. That's what it says. Redemption is there for Israel. That is, it's for the people. God has redemption for those who say yes to his son, Jesus Christ, in mind. You're free from the corruption. You're now his. And I'll point out, Colossians uh, 1, 13 through 14 is a nice verse to round out this idea. It says, For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. But I want to point out one important thing about this, because it talks about the redemption of Israel, not simply the redemption of me or you, it's the redemption of God's people. All those who say yes to Jesus collectively would be considered in that. Now, um, a number of years ago, one of my colleagues in ministry was leading a session. And he, he's now, he's not quite retired, but he's close. So there's a, uh, he's been at this for much longer than I have and many in the group. And he said, you know what? I used to say in my younger years that if you're a pastor who's not connected to other pastors in ministry, you're going to have a hard time. You're going to struggle throughout your ministry because you're not connected to colleagues who can support you. But he said, I've changed my tune at this point. If you're not connected to other colleagues in ministry throughout your ministry career, he said, you won't make it. You'll burn out. You need others to walk this journey. And brothers and sisters in Christ, we need the exact same thing if we follow Jesus. We need one another as the body of believers. Otherwise, we don't make it. Not because you're my salvation or I'm your salvation. Jesus is our salvation, and his blood covers us, and it's redemption for us, his people. And if you don't know that redemption today, I invite you to that. And if you're feeling distant from that redemption today, lament, confess, and start a new day with him. If we look at the psalm, we can see that God is up to something. God is up to something here for those who pilgrimage with him. And spoiler alert, it's good. God's got good news for those who give into his mercy and receive his mercy and the blood of his son, Jesus Christ. Because you, me, and this world we live in have been corrupted by sin. And we are all part of the problem. But God did not design us for sin and corruption. God designed us for reverent service to his name and communion with him and those who follow him. So seek God's mercy today. Start with lament and confession for a new life and for hope centered on God's redemption through Jesus Christ. Let's pray together to that end. Lord, there are some of us in the room who do feel out of the depths we're crying out today, and we need the words that you have for us. We are lamenting, and we continue to lament. There are things in this world that eat at our souls and weigh us down, and we feel oppressed by those things. They're pushing so hard, Lord. They're happening in our personal lives. They're happening in the culture around us. We feel them. Lord, help us wait through the night on pilgrimage with you, knowing that you walk with us in those difficult seasons that we didn't cause, but that were thrust upon us. Lord, for where we stand in judgment before you and we are unresolved in that and we have not received your son Jesus and said yes to him, Lord, today, if you're in the house or online and you need to say yes to Jesus, say yes right now. 
Lord Jesus, I have sinned and I want to be forgiven. And Lord, for those of us who have said yes to you, but it's been a long time since we confessed, Lord, we do the exact same thing. We say, I've sinned, Lord, and these specific ways I have crossed the line. But I want to be made whole with you again. I want your blood to wash over me and cleanse me. Lord, make us a holy people who experience your redemption and broadcast that redemption out to the world around us that we would call others in who live in this world corrupted by sin but was never designed for that. That they would experience the true thing they were designed for, which is relationship with you and your church. We pray this in your son Jesus. Amen.